Dedication and Preface of The Tomb of Tutankhamun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in March 2019. The Tomb of Tutankhamun. Discovered by the late Earl of Carnarvon and Howard Carter. By Howard Carter and A.C. Mace. Volume 1. Dedication. With the full sympathy of my collaborator, Mr. Mace, I dedicate this account of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun to the memory of my beloved friend and colleague, Lord Carnarvon, who died in the hour of his triumph. But for his untiring generosity and constant encouragement, our labours could never have been crowned with success. His judgment in ancient art has rarely been equalled. His efforts, which have done so much to extend our knowledge of Egyptology, will ever be honoured in history, and by me his memory will always be cherished. Preface This narrative of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun is merely preliminary. A final record of purely scientific nature will take some time, nor can it be adequately made until the work of investigation of the tomb and its vast material has been completed. Nevertheless, in view of the public interest in our discovery, we felt that some account, without loss of time, no matter how summary, was necessary, and that is the reason for the publication of this book. We have here, for the first time, a royal burial very little disturbed in spite of the hurried plundering it has suffered at the hands of the ancient tomb robbers, and within the shrines of the tomb chamber I believe the pharaoh lies intact in all his royal magnificence. It has been suggested by certain Egyptologists that we should write up in the summer and publish at once all we have done in the winter. But there is, outside the stress of work and other duties, a strong reason against this. Our work will take several seasons of concentrated labour on our discovery, the tomb of the contents of which we are making as faithful a record as possible. If, following the advice of our critics, we were to write up our progress in detail before our work could be collated in its entirety, mistakes would necessarily creep in which, when once made, would be hard to rectify. We therefore venture to hope that the method we have adopted is more in the interest of scientific accuracy and less likely to give rise to erroneous impressions. Nor are warnings wanting against undue haste. For instance, we bear in mind the vault containing the cache of Ankenaten found in this valley. The account of this important and interesting discovery was hurriedly published and announced as the tomb of Queen Tiye, whereas, after more careful investigation, only one object in that magnificent find, the so-called canopy, which apparently had had an extraordinary influence on the minds of its discoveries and recorders, could be claimed as possibly belonging to that queen. Such mistakes as these we wish to avoid. Moreover, as we have yet seen only one quarter of the contents of this tomb, in this preliminary account we venture to claim the indulgence of the reader. He will understand that it must be subject to possible future correction in accordance with the nature of facts revealed by the further progress of our work. 
when, by the dim light of a candle, we made the first cursory examination of the antechamber, we thought that one of the caskets, number 101, contained rolls of papyri. But later, under the rays of a powerful electric light, these proved to be rolls of linen, which had even then some resemblance to rolls of papyri. This was naturally disappointing, and gave rise to the suggestion that the historical harvest, compared with the artistic value of our discovery, will be unimportant because of the lack of literary evidence concerning King Tutankhamun and the political confusion of his time. It has also been argued that these chambers do not represent the actual tomb of the king, but that Horemhab, Tutankhamun's second successor, had probably usurped his real tomb and hurriedly placed his furniture in the chambers of this vault. Nor is this all. It has also been said that it was merely a cache, and further it has even more improbably been conjectured that the objects found therein were a collection of palace furniture, belonging to the dynasty, and hidden there as Tutankhamun was the last of that royal line, and that of these many were of Mesopotamian origin. I may perhaps be pardoned for here observing that these criticisms have been advanced by authors who have never seen the tomb, let alone its contents. Now in reply to these objections I would here say that so far as we have gone, we have found nothing that should not belong to the funerary equipment of the king. All the objects are in perfect keeping with the evidence and knowledge gleaned from the fragmentary material of the royal tombs of the new empire discovered in this valley, and they are in every way pure late 18th dynasty Egyptian. That this discovery is the real tomb of Tutankhamun, there can, I think, be no doubt, but it must be remembered that, like the tomb of Ai, his immediate successor, it is of semi-royal and semi-private type. In fact, it is rather the sepulchre of a possible heir to the throne than that of a king. A comparison of the tomb plan with that of the tombs of the king's mothers, the king's wives and the king's children, in the Valley of the Queens, and with the tombs of his predecessors and successors in the Valley of the Kings, will, I think, show this. From its style of work and certain idiosyncrasies observable, it is not improbable that it was made by the same hand as the vault that contained the transported burial of Ankenaten, which is in its near vicinity. The plan of that vault closely resembles the tomb of Tutankhamun, and both are alike variants of the plan and principles of the tombs of the Theban monarchs of the empire. The apparent curtailment of design in the Ankenaten vault, it having alone the only completed chamber, was probably due to its being made for a cache to receive nothing but the revered mummy with a few essentials belonging to its burial. It may be for that reason that we find only the first chamber, the antechamber, prepared and plastered to receive those remains. It should also be noted that in the right-hand wall of this one chamber, the ancient Egyptian mason commenced the second room, which now, in its incomplete state, suggests a niche, but on comparing it with the grave of Tutankhamun, the idea and the intention become obvious. It was to be a sepulchral hall. In other words, in the design there is a certain affinity with the tomb of Akhenaten at El Amarna, 
and the vault devised for a cache in this valley for the so-called heretic king, and also with the tombs of Tutankhamun and Ai, which is peculiar to that El Amarna branch of the dynasty. With them we also find the finest art of the imperial age in Egypt, and also the germ of its decadence, which made itself manifest in the succeeding 19th dynasty. It was King Ai, Tutankhamun's successor, who buried our monarch, for there, on the inner walls of Tutankhamun's tomb chamber, Ai, as king, has caused himself to be represented among the religious scenes, officiating before Tutankhamun, a scene unprecedented in the royal tombs of this necropolis. It were, perhaps, well at this point to say something concerning the mentality of the ancient Egyptians as manifested in their art, which is closely associated with their religion. If we study the ancient Egyptian religious ideas, we may be absorbed by the curious medley of their methodology, yet in the end we shall feel that we have progressed beyond them. But if once we have acquired the power of admiring and understanding their art, we do not, for the most part, entertain this assurance of aesthetic progress and superiority. Perhaps we may do so in minor details, but no sensible person will ever imagine that he has got beyond the essentials their art embodies. We cannot with all our progress get beyond those essentials. Egyptian art expresses its aim in a stately and simple convention, and is thus dignified by its own sedateness, and was never wanting in reverence. No doubt lack of perspective in their art implies limitation, therefore not a little must be surrendered to this limitation, but within its convention the best Egyptian art embodies refinement, embodies love of simplicity, patience in execution, and never descends to an unideal copy of nature. Simplicity is the sign of greatness in art, and the Egyptians never strove to be original or to be sensational. Within the trammels of his convention, the ancient Egyptian looked at nature through his own eyes, and thus character was imparted alone by his subjective personality, whether from a religious or aesthetic point of view. It is for this reason that Egyptian portraiture to the untrained eye often appears to have a certain sameness and even monotony. This, however, is really due to the convention of the epoch, whereby individual traits were softened in accordance with the ideals of the Egyptian convention. These facts are manifested by the material in the tomb of Tutankhamun. We are astounded by the immense productivity of the art of its period which it contains, but in studying it, a somewhat unexpected aspect of the character and domestic tastes of the king is suggested. Tutankhamun's tastes seem to have been rather those of a nobleman than those associated with the religious and official art dominant in this royal Theban cemetery. In the art of his tomb it is the domestic affection and solar tendency that are the dominant ideas, rather than the austere religious convention that characterizes all the other royal tombs in this valley. Among the immense quantities of material in Tutankhamun's tomb, as also exhibited in the beautiful reliefs of his reign in the great colonnade of the Temple of Luxor, we find extreme delicacy of style, together with character of the utmost refinement. In the case of a painted scene, vase or statue, the primary idea of art is obvious, 
but in utilitarian objects such as a walking stick, staff or wine strainer, art, as we know too well today, is not a necessity. Here in this tomb, the artistic value seems to have been always the first consideration. This is scarcely the place to discuss the question of ancient Egyptian art, as the book deals mainly with the actual finding of the tomb. But the valley cannot be overlooked, and it will be helpful to include some general statements upon its impressive history, as well as to record certain unexpected events to which the discovery gave rise. After so many years of barren labor, a sudden development of great magnitude finds one unprepared. One is, for instance, confronted by the question of adequate and competent assistance. In this case, the help needed obviously included the all-important recording, photographing, planning, and the preservation of the objects, the latter demanding chemical knowledge. But the first and most pressing need was that of photography and drawing. Nothing could be contemplated until a full pictorial record of the contents of the antechamber had been made. This must not only include photographs of the general disposition of the objects therein and the order of their sequence, but must afterwards be followed by diagrammatic drawings showing relative positions as seen from above, a task involving not only photographic skill of a high order, but also that of an experienced surveyor. Then came the consideration of their preservation, their removal, and their description, the work of a chemist, of a man experienced in the handling of antiquities, and, finally, of an archaeologist. This problem was quickly solved through the generosity of our colleagues of the American Expedition of the Metropolitan Museum of Art of New York. In answer to my appeal, my most esteemed friend and colleague, Mr. A. M. Lithgow, the curator of the Egyptian department of that museum, whose kind offer was subsequently most generously confirmed by his trustees and director, cabled and placed at my disposal, to the detriment of their own work, such members of their staff as might be required. For such luck as this I had not dared to hope. It included the services of Mr. A. C. Mace, one of their associate curators, of Mr. Harry Burton, their expert photographic recorder, to whom the photographs in this volume are due, and of Messrs. Hall and Hauser, draftsmen to their expedition, a group of very able fieldmen, and all of wide archaeological knowledge. And let me here place on record the sacrifice that Mr. Mace, the director of their excavations on the pyramid field at Licht, made in our interests, which meant the abandonment of his many years of research work at Licht, and I should add that the preparation of this book has fallen largely on his shoulders. At the same time I must express our most sincere and grateful thanks to the trustees of the Metropolitan Museum of Art of New York, to their director, Mr. Edward Robinson, to Mr. Lithgow, and also to Mr. H. E. Winlock, whose expedition for them at Thebes was thus considerably denuded. While in Cairo another stroke of good luck occurred. Mr. Lucas, director of the chemical department of the Egyptian government, for the moment free of his official duties, offered us the valuable aid of his chemical knowledge. Previous to this, when I realized the probable magnitude of the discovery, Mr. A. R. Callender at Erment, 
who had often assisted me on former occasions, at once came to my aid. Dr. Allen Gardiner also very kindly placed his unrivalled philological knowledge at our disposal. Moreover, Professor James H. Breasted, of the University of Chicago, the eminent historian of ancient Egypt, then in Egypt, gave me his valued advice and enlightened me upon the historical data and evidence of the seal impressions on the four sealed doorways found in various conditions in the tomb. Throughout the whole of this undertaking, we received the utmost courtesy and kindness from all the officials connected with the Department of Antiquities of the Egyptian government, and I herewith desire to express the acknowledgment due to Monsieur Lacot, Directeur General Le Service des Antiquités. And here I may mention how much I am indebted to the members of the Times staff for all their ready cooperation in all matters, even those outside the sphere of their own interests. My appreciative thanks are also due to Lady Berkeley, Lord Carnarvon's devoted sister, for the biographical introduction which she has so kindly contributed, for no one could have been better fitted to carry out this task. I must also thank my dear friend Mr. Percy White, the novelist, professor of English literature in the Egyptian University, for his ungrudging literary help. Lastly, I should like to express my recognition of the services of my Egyptian staff of workmen, who have loyally and conscientiously carried out every duty which I entrusted to them. The letter on page 15, which, in its quaint English, shows their zeal during my absence, should perhaps go on record. Howard Carter, August 1923 End of Preface